Welcome to MO Forum. I'm joined uh, by a distinguished economist and great Australian, Ross Garno, who's just written a book that really should be read by everyone called Dog Days. It talks about the period after the mining boom, uh, but draws on the experience of Australia in handling very various booms and busts over many years. Um, and so we wanted to take this opportunity, Ross, to have a chat to you about dog days, about the uh, future for the Australian economy, but also the final one third of the book is a bit of a departure from your straight economic writings where you do um, have some uh, moral arguments that you put some parallels perhaps with Adam Smith who wrote an economic treatise called An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, but another one which he started and finished beforehand, but kept writing and revising over his lifetime the th called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So I saw some parallels that um, you're doing your theory of moral sentiments uh, after uh, the very heavy hitting and hard work that you've done over many years. So. Welcome to MO Forum. Uh, I do urge you to have a look at this book. $19.95 recommended retail price, and that's at <laughs> airports, so you might even get a discount if you buy it online. <laughs> but do go to a small bookstore because we do want them to do well. Uh, so welcome, Ross. Well, uh, very nice to be here, Craig, and to talk to you on uh, MO uh, Forum. Forum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, Australia needs more of this. Uh, uh, Australia faces some pretty big problems and uh, the starting point has to be uh, an awareness within the community. First, we've got a problem and second, that uh, uh, there's some pretty hard thinking necessary to get out of our problem. So uh, it's only by widespread um, discussion within those parts of the Australian community are prepared to look at things in the public interest, look at policy in the public interest rather than just because they're pushing some uh, sectoral barrow or uh, some partisan political barrow. And uh, uh, that, that's the context in which I'm very glad to be here. Well, thanks, Ross. The book really does talk about the uh, post-China economic situation in Australia or the post-boom situation, China's going to be there for a long time, uh, but you draw upon the experience of Australia uh, through various booms uh, over the last 150 years, I think even going back to the gold rushes, but the, uh, the period of the uh, very late 19th century uh, and mm. other booms, and you uh, analyse how well we've handled the aftermath of those booms when inevitably they bust. Yeah. Um, how have we done? Well, it's a pretty sad story, really. And the saddest thing is that we don't easily learn the lessons <laughs> of the past, so, so we do them again. Uh, yeah, I start with the uh, the big boom that Australia had from the gold rushes to the end of the 1880s, uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, expansion and really created Australia. Mm. Uh, a period of great immigration, of economic development. Uh, the ideas that shaped federal Australia were formed uh, in, the, uh, in the last few decades of, of the century. Uh, and uh, during the 1880s, at the end of the period of expansion, uh, we, we, we were enjoying very high export prices. In those days, wool mattered more than anything else, or wool mm. and gold. Yeah. But, uh, wool prices were very high. 
was a time of industrial expansion in Britain. Uh, and the London banks, and London was the world financial system in those days, just loved lending to Australia. Couldn't get enough of us. And, uh, and, and, and we had 30 or 40 banks in Melbourne. It would have been something similar in Sydney. Mm. Uh, and quite a few in, in, in the other uh, uh, um, colonies. And uh, we were a much smaller economy then. Uh, but all of these banks were, were borrowing flat out from Britain and lending for urban expansion, uh, and we had quite a boom. Uh, in 1889, real estate prices in the area where I live in Melbourne reached a level in real terms that weren't approached again until 1989, 100, 100 years later. Yeah. It, it was one heck of a boom. Uh, and then in 1891, uh, the, the wool price collapsed in London. Yeah. Uh, uh, England went through some, well, the international financial system went through a bit of a crack and, uh, uh, and uh, um, that affected... Uh, uh, the uh, international lending, it affected uh, commodity prices, wool prices fell a lot. When I was a kid, uh, we used to all learn the Ballad of 1891, telling the story of the Great Shearer's Strike, and be began the, the price of wool was falling in 1891. The men who owned the acres said, something must be done. We'll break the Shearer's Union. We'll show where the the masters still. We'll, f we'll pay the, the wage we give... Uh, we want to, uh, or we'll find the men who will. They'll take the pay uh, uh, we give them, or uh, mm. we'll find the men they will. So the price of, um, uh, of wool fell. Uh, the capacity to support the high wages that had built up during the boom was no longer there. And at the same time, suddenly the credit from London to the banks dried oh. up. Uh, so... Uh, uh, you had all of this lending to real estate. Melbourne was the centre of it, but it was happening in Sydney and uh, Brisbane, other places as well. Just dried up, and uh, unless you've got continued renewal of lending, a, a rollover of the debt, you get a collapse. And so the price of uh, real estate collapsed, and so the, the debt uh, became valueless. A majority of the banks in Australia failed, mm. uh, and we had huge unemployment. Uh, that, that was a terrible story. Uh, big pressures for wages to fall, and the economic reality was we could no longer afford the, the, the living standards that we'd given ourselves uh, dur during the Great Boom. We hadn't put anything aside. That was a terrible experience, deep recession. In fact, for, for Victoria, which was then our biggest state, uh, it was a, it was worse than the Great Depression wow. and uh, unemployment. And, uh, and here's an irony out of that. You um, talked about this song about shearers and so on. The Australian Labor Party was formed out of a bursting boom. That's right. Uh, and in a way, the it was a, the formation of that party was a, a reaction against the the adjustment. The adjustment. The, yeah. Uh, and uh, lower prices. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, and in the minds of some people, the the political role of Labor was to try to resist all these mm. forces. But it wasn't the only idea in the system. Fortunately, uh, uh, it was mixed up with with, with other ideas, and uh, uh, and uh, um, that mixture of ideas allowed the first federal Labor governments to be to be more progressive. Well, education for kids was one of the basic. Um, uh, aims of the early Labor people. But if we go forward, I mean, the Great Depression has been well and truly analysed. Can we fast forward into a short, sharp boom of the Korean War yeah. and then 
uh, a period of um, some booms in the early 70s and uh, terrible uh, slowdowns from the world oil price shocks. Yeah, well, um, the, the Korean War boom is really interesting. Uh, until this episode, until the China resources boom of the early 21st century, the highest terms of trade mm. we ever had were during the Korean War. didn't last that long, but for a while, uh, um, uh, our export prices were extraordinarily high. And this high. was wool, wasn't it? Wool was the big one. Yeah. Uh, the, the other prices were reasonably strong, lead and zinc, yeah. uh, used in armaments. So, but, but wool, because... A war in a cold country, cold country uh, suddenly yeah. uh, uh, the United States uh, and, and uh, other forces uh, uh, employed in Korea suddenly need, needed huge quantities of uh, warm clothes. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, in that early post-war period, uh, Men, the Menzies government, which was formed in uh, forty nine, mm. had wisely kept on the economists that have been put together by the Chifley government, mm-hmm. uh, led right. by uh, Nugget Coombs, who, yeah. who was uh, uh, head of what was then called the Commonwealth Bank, but it played a central banking function, and uh, uh, also very good economists uh, trained in the new Keynesian doctrines from the 1930s. Okay. So, the lessons of uh, the 30s had been learned. They, they had been learned and uh, uh, absorbed by the uh, uh, young public servants who came to work in the wartime government, the post-war government, and Menzies kept them on. Uh, and, 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 uh, uh, and this was the first big challenge to the Menzies government, and it was handled well. It was based, the good response was based on uh, advice from, from, the, the, pub, from yeah. the economists, and uh, they applied uh, a basic Keynesian uh, insight. Now, everyone associate Keynes with uh, more expenditure in recession, but the other side of the coin was that Keynes said that, that when you have exceptionally good conditions, yeah. you don't let that raise your whole cost level. You, you save a lot more and you need to run a big budget surplus uh, when times are good. Well, that advice was given to uh, Menzies and his uh, treasurer, Fadden, uh, and they put in place in uh, what's called the horror b- budget of 51 um, a series of measures that actually took out of the economy a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the increase in incomes. Now, because the big centre of the increased export price was wool, it was mainly farm incomes that were going through the roof. And Fadden was a country party <laughs> leader uh, and treasurer, and he introduced a budget, one of the things of which was that farmers had to pay a number of years of income tax in advance. They, they had the cash to do it because uh, of the very high export prices, and in effect they were forced to save. Now, they were a bit grumpy at the time, uh, but, <laughs> but when the price of wool came down, they effectively they'd didn't. Already paid the they'd tax. already paid the next yeah, few yeah. years' tax, yeah. and, uh, and so they got it all back. And uh, taking that money out of the system... Uh, uh, and they went further than that. They raised a number of taxes. They reduced expenditure. And so we had a, a brief downturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we would probably call it a recession, although we don't actually know from no, the data of those days. We didn't have accounts. quarterly, yeah, didn't no. have quarterly national accounts. But probably if we'd been able to measure it, it would have been a brief, shallow recession. But it uh, stopped the cost structure of Australia getting out of hand. It, we remain competitive and, uh, uh, and that laid the basis for the prosperity of the rest of the 50s and the 60s. So, so, so that's yeah. a good story. And that's, a, as you say, over a very short period. But um, listening to what you're saying, maybe the lessons of that part of history should have been learned too. Yeah. That is, 
one episode where we have managed to boom well that yeah. we haven't spent as if the boom was going to continue forever. Yeah. 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 So, well, the next time we were faced with these circumstances was uh, late in the Japan boom. Well, we're talking now about the China boom, mm. the rapid industrial growth of uh, China. But uh, in the post-war period, the big story was, was Japan. Yeah. Uh, now, Japan had been a, a, a reasonably developed country in the 30s. It had to be or wouldn't have been able to wage a war. Wage a war. Mm. Uh, but it, it was not at its uh, peak. And then look, the Japanese economy was destroyed by, uh, by the bombing of the, of the war. And, and so you had a big reconstruction job. Uh, but by uh, about the mid-50s, it was back to the income levels of uh, the 30s, and then it kept growing very rapidly. And through the through the 60s, it became um, uh, uh, industrial activity that used metals and energy intensively, and it was in some ways the equivalent of Japan going through the phase that China was yeah. going through earlier. So they needed uh, metallurgical coal for the blast furnaces, and they needed iron ore. They needed iron ore, but and also nickel and yeah, and copper, yep. and, uh, and during that ex- period of expansion, you had very high prices for a lot of these products, mm. uh, and uh, and that uh, really laid the basis of uh, of a lot of our mining industry. That was they were the days when the iron ore export started. We had so the infrastructure would have been put in place like for that. Yeah, the, the very first been. projects in the Pilbara mm. in Queensland, you had the first opening up of the metallurgical yep. coal in. Um, central Queensland. The nickel industry didn't exist right. before that, but uh, you, you had mines open in Western Australia. Uh, and that that really started in the mid-60s, uh, kept going, kept getting stronger. And uh, But because Japan's growth in demand for um, uh, metals and energy was growing so strongly, the world market for a lot of these things started to tighten. And that created the opportunity for the Arabs to to jack up the price of oil oh. by restricting uh, the, uh, the, the, the the export the supply, of, yeah, of, through of, OPEC. Yeah. Now they did that in response to the Yom Kippur War mm. uh, and sort of uh, in reaction to the, to the West supporting Israel in the war. So there was a political and ideological motive, but they wouldn't have been able to do it if if it hadn't been a period of strong demand for uh, petroleum. For petroleum, yeah. uh, and so. Uh, because some of our exports uh, were substitutes for petroleum, like coal, mm. uh, then that gave a boost on top of all the right. other boosts. Yeah. So, so in the early 70s, uh, we, we went through another period of ex- exceptional terms of trade. Uh, in the, in no, last, that's another boom. That's like another, another boom, can, yeah. Uh, and uh, high prosperity, high employment, uh, and they were the circumstances in which the Whitlam government came to office. And, so why didn't they stick with the McMahon government if he was if they were presiding over such a marvellous um, economy? Well, generally Australians uh, stick by leaders who uh, uh, who uh, preside over prosperity, but there are some limits. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, Billy McMahon uh, went beyond, <laughs> beyond those limits. Yeah. Uh, plus, uh, Whitlam had an unusual appeal. Uh, and a broader, like he had a big social agenda. Uh, as well, and young people were uh, were excited by the international uh, agenda as well. Yeah. Uh, that was the uh, the later days when Australians were growing disillusioned with, with the, the Vietnam, Vietnam War, yeah. and we still yeah. had conscription. So, so the, the, there were all those reasons, uh, and also uh, uh, the Australian uh, community, the Australian electorate, 
has, has never uh, wanted to reward um, leaders who have come to power over the over the back of other leaders. Yeah, and uh, he'd, so, so he'd knocked over he'd knocked Gordon. over Gorton. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and so he's off to a bad start. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, that, so, and hadn't really established himself. In, but that was a pretty short period, wasn't it? Yeah, so Gordon, too uh, Gordon had won the '69 election, election yeah. uh, where Whitlam had actually done quite well. Mm. But uh, yeah. uh, and then. Uh, halfway through that next term, McMahon had become prime minister, yeah. uh, but um, uh, th- there wasn't any feeling in, in any part of the Australian political system that that uh, we were in exceptional times and had to be a bit cautious. Mm. And the Whitlam government uh, c- came to power uh, with, with the uh, with the idea in its mind, in Goff's mind, because that was a mind that, that mattered. He was a dominant leader uh, that. Uh, the main challenge facing Australia was how to share all this prosperity around more equitably. Right. So the uh, big social reforms. Huge yeah. social reforms, a very detailed program. And Gough uh, uh, made a big thing of um, how he was going to keep every promise. Uh, and he'd made a lot of detailed promises. Uh, and he was committed to keep faith with the Australian electorate and deliver on every promise, and he did. Yeah. There's never been a Prime Minister in Australian history who had, who in more detail delivered everything that he They called it the program. That's okay. right, yeah. and if it was in the program, it happened. happened. Uh, now, uh, as booms always do, this one came to an end. Usually uh, to an abrupt end, is it, are these booms in Australian economic history, do they bust or do they deflate? Uh, usually they bust, yeah. and in 74 it busted. <laughs> uh, this, this last one's a bit different, it's deflating. Deflating, yeah. Uh, but uh, 74 was one heck of a bust. And that's the oil, first oil shock? Well, the oil shock came in, in um, uh, 73, late 73, the Yom Kippur War, yeah. uh, and... Uh, uh, and, and that initially uh, raised Australian export prices a bit. Because uh, of the value of coal. Yes, but, but that wasn't our, our main export, but these were boom times for the price of grain, for the price of beef, for the price of metals mm-hmm. uh, like copper and lead and uh, zinc, products of Mount Isa and Broken Hill and uh, mm. Port Perry. Uh, so... Uh, um, uh, what precipitated the fall in commodity prices was that, uh, uh, that there was a sudden uh, loss of confidence in the international community in '74, and a pricking of the bubble, uh, in which um, the increase in oil prices was quite important. Yeah. Uh, uh, the sudden increase in oil prices meant a lot of income was transferred from the developed countries to the mm-hmm. oil exporters. Yeah. Uh, that reduced. It Incomes and expenditure in the developed countries, mm-hmm. and so the United States and confidence went. Yeah, United States. You wouldn't know whether they're going to put the price up again. That's right. And uh, they did. Uh, <laughs> United States, Europe, Japan all went into recession. This for Japan was mm. a big change because yeah, they've yeah. been growing at seven or eight percent per annum. Um, so uh, how did we handle this one? Well, uh, we hadn't put anything aside, <laughs> and we'd we'd Ray uh, Goff was. Uh, Gough Whitlam was delivering the program, mm. uh, and people liked that part of what he was yeah. doing. And and the government was still in good shape uh, for as long as uh, as the good times lasted. But in the September quarter, the falls in of what com- year of seventy four, right? Uh, the the falls in commodity prices were 
were starting to affect economic activity. Uh, and in those days, we had a fixed exchange rate. Mm -hmm. uh, so the exchange rate had been jacked up a bit, but it was get jacked up by officials and they didn't bring it down straight away. So uh, we went through a period where uh, our industry was highly uncompetitive. Yeah. Prices started to fall. Uh, it, it, with the fixed exchange rate, money supply fell with export prices. The balance of payments deteriorated and that reduced the money supply. So that raised interest rates, the way mm. the economy worked in those days. Uh, and uh, we uh, and we we quickly went in late '74 to the highest unemployment we, we'd had since the '30s, right. and that was one heck of a shock sure. for the community. Yeah. Uh, unemployment through uh, through '75, when the Whitlam government lost office, was was around five percent. Uh, I have to go and check mm. in detail, but around yeah. that level, uh, which today doesn't sound that bad. No. But when you've had a couple of decades of 2% unemployment yeah. and even in More the recession of yeah. 1991, uh, only about three, uh, that, that was one heck of a shock. Mm. And uh, I, I think that was the biggest factor in undermining electoral support for the Whitlam government. We hadn't put money aside. And so uh, uh, when, uh, when uh, international funds started drying up uh, uh, and when uh, commodity prices fell, uh, the, the, there was no fallback. We just went deeply into recession. And that period from, say, 74, right, there was a bit of a recovery, but then there was another recession in 1981 and 82 where unemployment and inflation, this is a neat trick, both exceeded 10%. Yeah, well, from 74 to 83, uh, we, we had, had a period of instability, Unemployment never recovered much, mm. and that, and and we had a couple of dips in which it got worse, and the, but then didn't get much better. Yeah. So you didn't have you had nothing like a return to high employment during that period. You you had high inflation right through. Yes. Uh, you, you had low investment and stagnation right through. Now towards the end of the period, the. Uh, 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 the oil exporting countries of the Middle East had another crack at putting the price up. Uh, well, actually, this time it wasn't policy. You had the Iran-Iraq war, which uh, knocked out of uh, the international system a big hunk of supply from Iran and Iraq. The oil price went up again. And that was what they called the second oil price. <coughs> second, and that was, uh, uh, that was also a very big one. And mm. the oil price went much higher than it had in real terms in '73. Well, again, we got a big boost from that. Uh, from, um, from, our coal. from from our coal, and but, we were producing a by then a pretty neat amount of crude oil as well, weren't we? Out yeah, of our trade. Yes, so uh, we were almost self-sufficient, mm. but uh, we're still a net importer. But that uh, uh, but, protected us too. But, well, well, it protected the budget mm. because Malcolm Fraser <laughs> took it all. Took a hundred percent of the increase in oil price. That uh, sounds like a pretty. A high rate of resource rent tax. That sounds like a great big tax to yeah, me. <laughs> but uh, but it meant that the budget of uh, uh, of eighty two of eighty one eighty two the, the last budget until the economy fell into recession again was roughly balanced a small mm. deficit. When if it had not taxed the extra uh, income from the higher prices for more than a hundred percent, the budget would have been about seventy billion dollars wow. in today's. Uh, terms, terms as a proportion of the yeah. economy. So uh, 
there'd been a lot of uh, there was a lot of anxiety in Australia about uh, a, a, a tax increase on mining that took a few percent of the incremental income from higher prices uh, in the things that eventually turned out uh, to be implemented. Uh, well, Malcolm Fraser took 100%. Took 100 uh, yeah. I don't say that, that wasn't good policy, mm. but it certainly protected the, the, the budget. The budget yeah. uh, but um, the, the other thing that happened during that uh, late uh, uh, 70s, early 80s resources boom, Japan had taken a decision in the late 70s, quite similar to the decision that China has taken recently, that it needed to change the structure of its economy. Mm -hmm. uh, people were fed up with the pollution. So they started exporting their big, uh, yeah. heavy industries. Yeah, through, industries. through the 60s and beginning of the 70s, a lot of their growth was energy intensive, heavy industry, rapid growth of uh, the steel industry, aluminium smelting, burning coal to mm. generate electricity yeah. for aluminium. Well, they decided the community became well off enough to value a clean environment more than a bit more and this income. Is, you see the parallels with China right now. It's, it's a very similar close story. To the number one issue yeah. in China. But that's how we got an aluminium industry. Right. Uh, if you go back to the to, to the mid seventies, Japan had the biggest aluminium industry production industry in the world, mm. and we had no aluminium exports. Uh, uh, Japan put a whole lot of regulatory controls on use, of, well, on polluting industries, and that had its biggest effect on the coal-using industries, yeah. and uh, that created incentives effectively to shift the aluminium industry of uh, of Japan offshore, mostly to Australia. Of course, we had these big coal fields that could generate lots of electricity, and uh, aluminium is basically aluminium plus electricity. That's right, and. Uh, uh, in uh, and so we got new plants uh, wherever we had coal fields. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the, put the big power stations on the coal fields yeah. and put a big wire into the aluminium. That's right. <laughs> the, the, the Hunter Valley, uh, uh, Gladstone, yeah. uh, and uh, Portland. Well, Portland wasn't the right uh, place; it wasn't on the coal field, but that was a marginal electorate uh, <laughs> okay. for the. Uh, and uh, so they ran a long wire from the Latrobe Valley yeah. to the coal field to uh, to Portland. Uh, and aluminium became a very big industry, but it, but we had it because Japan uh, began to focus yeah. on environmental amenity. I understand. So then we came to the period called, that you call in the book the reform era. Well, I, I think we we better just finish that story. Right. No boom lasts forever, and this one didn't. Uh, and so this was kind of a short resources boom yeah. on, on it, aluminium um, energy-intensive yeah. manufacturing. Uh, uh, and it was never strong enough to reduce unemployment to, yeah. to what we, we used to call low levels, uh, but we got a bit of a, a boost in activity briefly, and during that period, incomes rose, government expenditure rose. Everybody's happy. <laughs> Everybody's happy. And then... Go to the beach. The, the same thing happened as always happens. Yeah. Prices fall, becomes more difficult to get international funding for new projects, and so uh, employment started to fall apart in the late... Uh, in late 82, and by... Uh, the time the Hawke government came to office in March '83, unemployment was 10.2%, mm. uh, which at that time was the highest since the Great Depression. Yeah. By the way, 90-day um, bank bills hit 22.4%. Yeah. If you were to 
be astonished at um, interest rates at that time as well. But interest rates were actually regulated for home borrowers. So the Hawke government came in and there were lots and lots of regulations and impediments uh, that would prevent Australia dealing with this boom-bust situation. Is that a reasonable summary? Well, it is, but the the reforms... But we we generally had a a, a very tightly regulated economy. It was a financial system, but wherever you look... Mm. The, the government was was finally regulating business decisions. Yeah. We've been talking about the high resources. High tariff world. We've been talking about the resources sector. Uh, a, com- a company couldn't enter a new contract for export without getting the approval of the Department of Trade. Well, uh, you and I just helped dismantle that because Lionel Bowman's the Trade Minister. I was working for Peter Walsh. You were working for Bob Hawke. Lionel didn't see the funny side of removing those export controls, but we did. That's right, and uh, uh, and every uh, new new contract, the the, uh, the the main job of the marketing department of every company was to come and see us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they could sell the stuff if, yeah. if only yeah, we let them. <laughs> we want to sell all the uh, stuff and make money for Australia. So there wasn't there wasn't don't know about that. <laughs> so it wasn't time to uh, for them to actually deal with their final customers. Uh, it was a horrible system. Mm. Uh, uh, but we got rid of that. But that's just one of a thousand forms of regulation yeah. that were tying up the economy. Another one was crude oil allocation. Yeah. Uh, all our uh, crude oil production from Bass Strait and uh, Barrow Island and mm. a little bit from Queensland, South Queensland. Um, uh, the, uh, every company had to, every oil refiner in Australia had to take a proportion of each oil field's uh, oil and the government set the price. Now, right. uh, we got rid of that. We got rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, 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 but that's what allowed Malcolm uh, Fraser to take 100% of the increase in revenue. He, he, he kept, the, the price had been kept actually down low, even right through. The, the crude oil allocations mm. system had been introduced under the Gorton government, yeah. and Whitlam had uh, kept it in place but kept the oil price very low. Well, the Fraser government... Uh, said, OK, we'll lift the oil price to international prices, but the government's going to take 100% of... Yeah. Uh, and that uh, was uh, sort of the beginning of import, so-called import parity pricing. Yes, yeah. and from then on, through regulation, whenever the oil price moved, with a bit of a lag, yeah. government would take another decision, say, well, this is now the price and this is the amount we'll take as tax. Yeah. Um, so so we, we got rid of that, but... Replace the, and replace the crude oil levy with uh, the resource rent tax, rent tax which, which you taught me and got me into Peter Walsh's office and we implemented. Yeah, and it's a much more efficient thing. The problem with the... Uh, uh, wherever you have government fine regulation of business decisions, you get distortions of resource allocation. Uh, um, the distortion in relation to the crude oil levy was that not all crude oil take, has the same cost. If you've got a great, opening up a great big basin in the middle of Bass Strait, probably only costs a dollar or two, or did in those days, to to pump this stuff out. But once you got later in the life Mm. of the field, you have to put down a whole lot of new holes to get the last bits. Pump stuff into it. And you have to to develop smaller fields Mm. where the costs were Mm. much higher. And if you had uh, a fixed uh, levy, uh, the crude oil levy, uh, then you effectively forced, took away all the incentives to uh, take all the higher costs. But when I started with the department of, or with Peter Walsh as resources and energy minister, 
The companies didn't quite mind this because they'd go to the officials in the Department of Resources and Energy and say, look at our costs. These ones, are can we tweak that a little bit? And they'd go off to lunch and then by the evening they'd done enough tweaking and Treasury quite liked it too because every barrel of oil that came out, they just multiplied by the crude oil levy and stuck it in the budget. So there wasn't actually a lot of support, I must say, uh, within the public service for the petroleum resource rent. No, no, there there wasn't, but uh, they but they implemented it mm-hmm. as good public service yeah. once uh, political leaders took the decision. And as a consequence of that, from then on, uh, we had efficient development of the Bass Strait resource, yeah. and uh, uh, and the resource rent tax uh, take automatically varied yeah. as the cost increases increased, and that's allowed us to have a much longer life for. Uh, Bass Strait than people in those days imagined. And one more little anecdote. Um, SO and BHP were given two options that we'd developed and they took what we thought was the wrong option. There's a variance of the petroleum resource rent tax. We said, well, we did put it out for consultation. It was, okay, we'll go with your option. About four years later, they came back and I said, can we have yours? <laughs> and we changed it to the one that we originally yeah. wanted. Well, there's... Uh... Uh, there are a lot of interesting corners of uh, of that, but uh, there are other issues. We yeah, yeah, get that's on right. With. Um, a couple of other quick regulations. Both airlines took off at the same time. Yep. Uh, there were two, the same, last same price, yeah. exactly the same price, exactly the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so this tendency to duopoly um, reinforced by government regulations, saying, well, that's pretty comfortable. Hawke and then Keating broke that open by um, deregulating a lot. I remember housing interest rates were fixed at 13.5%. I don't think anyone would want to be paying 13.5% these days, but the government was everywhere, wasn't it? Yeah. Setting regulation. Yeah, and it was a major drag on the economy, and it's one of the reasons why uh, uh, we had that continuing stagnation from 74 yeah. to 83. And I mentioned in the book, in dog days, I just give the figures on uh, uh, comparing the growth in that period and especially the growth employment mm. in employment with uh, what happened in the 80s and yeah. there's chalk and cheese yeah. and uh, uh, and getting rid of that regulation is an important part of the story. You, you, you only in the, we started um, collecting data, the Bureau of Statistics started collecting data on monthly hours worked per, mm. per, uh, per adult per, per, in, se- se- in se- yeah, 78. Per, yeah. Uh, in the next five years, I think it was only about 2% in, in our increase in hours worked. Uh, in the equivalent period of, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of the 80s, well, for the seven years uh, from 83 to uh, the, the end of the decade, uh, you can check it in the book, but I think it's 37% increase in so massive. Effectively, that's a good measure of employment yep. because it's the number of hours worked per adult. So yep. this helps deal with this problem of underemployment yep. where the official figures include someone who's um, worked for one or two hours yep. a week. Yep. Uh, so this deregulation and reducing uh, trade barriers, tariffs, they were 57.5% for cars yep. and then there were Quantitative limits. 57.5% in the tariff and then then the quotas. The quotas limited the number of cars you could import um, and if you're outside the quota, you paid even more. So probably, I'm guessing, but maybe nearly 
uh, price of cars was twice as high as it needed to be, something like that. Yeah, the uh, Productivity Commission measured the effective rate of protection. I think for cars it was around 80%. Yeah, uh, yeah. So for the, for the value that was added in Australia, mm. you paid 80% more, more than if you imported yeah, yeah. stuff. So uh, along comes a period uh, of textbook economics, by and large, not perfect, but pretty good. Uh, and out of that, there's a big increase in a measure called productivity growth, uh, something that um, Australia had struggled with for a very long time. What's that all about? Yeah, uh, I think we should just touch briefly on the recession that preceded oh, 1990. 1991. Yep, yep. Because uh, it's part of the reform period, and mm. uh, people like you and I, Craig, have to own up to it. Yep. It was a bad time, mm. mistakes were made. Mm. Uh, and the mistakes were, that were made have an awful lot in common with the mistakes in other firms. Uh, with financial deregulation, we had new players in the banking system and bank credit expanded very rapidly. And this yeah. looks, starts to look a bit like uh, Australia in the, in, in, in the 18, uh, right, yeah. uh, 80s. And so we had a real estate boom. And, that's, uh, and it was a brave new world, as you say, because of this deregulation. Yeah. So were banks wondering how they were going to fare and got very aggressive in their lending? I, I think so. Left I think the established Australian banks were nervous they'd lose market share yeah. and so lowered standards. And the regulatory authorities, and in those days it was the central bank because mm. we didn't have an APRA then, yeah. uh, the, the Reserve Bank wasn't quite sure how to measure monetary tightness in, mm -hmm. the, in these new conditions. In the it new, was a brave new, new world. world. Yeah. In Looking back, we can say things got out of hand, mm. but they were having difficulty working in measuring, in measuring uh, monetary mm. growth. Uh, so that's one technical reason. But also we had a bit of a terms of trade boom. We had a big fall in the middle of the decade, 85 and 86, yeah. But then... Uh, that was the so-called Banana Republic time. And yeah, and the, but then... The, a lot the, of belt tightening went on then. That's right, and, and the belt tightening continued. Mm. And uh, we, we ran what, by historical standards, was an unusually high uh, budget surplus, surplus. Uh, getting up towards 1.5% of GDP. Um, but uh, at the end of the decade, we started to get high commodity prices again. Wool mm. price high, uh, metals and energy prices were rising... They were boom time in uh, Japan. Again, not, not like the early days, yeah. but still pretty good in Europe and North America. Uh, and, uh, 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 and we made the same mistake that we've made a lot of times. So, uh, too much credit was extended uh, and we spent the high export prices as it came in. And then 89, there was a big thump. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you had political crisis in both Russia and China. Mm -hmm. Now, Russia took about 5% of our exports then and China 5%. Yeah. So nothing like China today, yeah. but still significant. Sure. And that lowered the price of beef, of wool, of a lot of our uh, exports. And so uh, um, that, that took the, the, the edge off the boom. Uh, and uh, the Reserve Bank belatedly started to worry about inflation yes. and started ja jacking up interest, interest rates, rates, but it did it too late. Mm. And so it, the, they were still tightening up uh, and raising interest rates when the economy was heading down, yeah. partly because the export prices were starting to fall. Right. And so we, we had this new big recession. Yeah. It's uh, the bad mark against the reform era, yeah. or the yeah. big, economically the biggest. And, and the government did it, but... Reading your book and earlier stuff, you're saying that all of the relevant advisors 
namely the Treasury, probably the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and the Reserve Bank all had pretty much the same view that this is what should happen, but it was wrong. Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm very confident of that view mm. because I was arguing against them. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't that I had any uh, special uh, uh, insight except that uh, I was chairman of a bank in, in Western, Western Australia. Australia. Yeah. And I could see your businesses, which had been very sound businesses, were running into trouble. Yeah. And so I talked to people in other banks about mm. that and I said, yeah, same mm. story here. Yeah. As about uh, you didn't have those messages going quickly to the Treasury and yeah. and the Reserve Bank. So if we'd ha we didn't have a, an independent Reserve Bank then, the, the Treasurer played a big role mm. in setting interest rates. But as I say in dog days, uh, even if uh, we'd had an independent uh, um, Reserve Bank, I doubt very much whether we would have got different decisions. Yeah, yeah. I understand. So this is the so-called recession we did or didn't have to have. Um, after that recession in 1991, the so-called reform dividend started coming through in productivity growth, which is uh, leading economist Paul Krugman said, isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. Yeah, yeah. And the best measure is something economists uh, rather boringly called, uh, called multi-factor productivity yep. growth. Or, but it, it's a measure of the productivity of both capital and, and labour. Yeah. And that's the right measure mm. for productivity, um, uh, looking at what, you get, what output you get from all of the resources, capital and labour, that you put in. And on that measure, uh, and let's call it total, uh, total productivity, on that measure of total productivity, uh, for, for, for five years in the 90s, we had the highest, distinctly the highest total productivity growth in the, in the in world, the, in the developed world. In the developed world, world yeah. Uh, now, that's a big change for Australia because mm. in the first eight decades of our federation, we had just about the lowest. Yeah. Uh, so uh, on the back of that, we were able to expand employment, have moderate increases in incomes, moderate increases in government expenditure, yeah. Uh, all at the same time, and, yeah. it, and it was sustainable. So that's what I was about to say. So this isn't a boom, although some people do call it a productivity boom, but it's different from a resources boom. This yeah. is something that's building over time and you can then bank on it, if you like, in terms of improving living standards on the back of productivity growth. And that's right, and that's, that's why Krugman said what he did. Yeah. He said in the long run... Uh, productivity growth is almost everything. Because you can have booms and busts and booms, but if you've got the productivity growing, that's the that's sustainable right. source of that'll growth. St that'll stay there. Yeah. We had that right through the 90s, um, falling away only in the last year or two of the century. Mm. And uh, economists who've looked at these things and the Productivity Commission mm. uh, have uh, associated this uh, exceptional productivity performance uh, in Australia with the booms, with the reforms of the 1980s and 1990s. But then things started to go sour again. This is not because of a uh, mineral boom or bust, but productivity growth, and I have done a lot of work on this, started stagnating. Yeah. And I think it turned negative around 2004, this total yeah. productivity pretty much stayed there ever since. Yeah, it, um, it started to turn down a lot at mm. the end of the century. Mm. Uh, so those very high rates of productivity growth, 2.5% um, per annum in total factor productivity growth, well, that's very high. Yeah. That ended yeah. about 98, 99. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and, and she was sliding from then on. And as you say, uh, in, in about 2004, it went negative and it stayed negative since yeah. then. Yeah. But there uh, have been some bright signs on the productivity front in the last year or so. Um, and I, I've looked at the, what the Reserve Bank thinks about this. When first saw it, productivity growth is actually a kind of a line that goes through very jagged up and down movements. And they didn't know whether it was one of those jagged up and down movements, but it seemed to be hanging in there pretty well until the Reserve Bank actually said, you know, I think this one, this upturn might be um, the the early signs of a longer term improvement. Well, well, labour productivity growth has increased. Uh, Now, labour productivity is looking at the output per worker. Per, per hour work. Uh, yeah. Per hour worked. And and you can get in improvements in labour productivity either because you become more, more productive, productive or, or because you use more capital. Machine, so. And if you use more capital, capital has a cost. Yeah. So you can't be 100% sure yeah. that that's actually sustainably increasing living standards. So. And indeed, capital productivity has fallen. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, and we won't know, and, and it, it's quite a big calculation to work out total productivity. Mm. So the data that the Bureau of Statistics yeah. puts out is always a couple of years behind. Yeah. So the latest we've got is 2011. And it would have been not very good around then. No, it's yeah. still, still poor. Now, one of the things I do in one chapter of the book, Dog Days, is um, is, is dig into these uh, productivity yeah. numbers. And it turns out that the negative performance is in just four sectors. Mm. Mining, yeah. where, where the rate of decline in productivity since since about 2003, 2004 is shocking. Mm. It's over 8% per annum decline right. in productivity. Yeah. Um, uh, secondly, utilities, of which the big ones are uh, uh, electricity, electricity and uh, uh, water, water. Mm. Uh, electricity by far the biggest, yeah. but then there are other bits and pieces. Uh, the third one is manufacturing, mm. and the fourth one is uh, financial services. Now, of course, these four are a big part of the economy, but um, if you look at the rest of the economy, there wasn't a decline in yeah. productivity. And there's a different story about each of these yeah. four. And to understand what's happened to productivity, you actually have to disaggregate. disaggregate. And uh, in the case of mining... The resources boom caused it. Yeah. Uh, um, Through several different mechanisms. Um, Marius Kloppers, the uh, chief executive of BHP at the time, uh, 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 once said to me uh, at the height of the boom, uh, and I was talking about productivity Mm. in mining. And he said, well, strategically, uh, in circumstances like this where margins are sky high. Because prices are sky high. And and costs are. Yeah. Low compared with prices, yeah. the profitability of the company is maximised by pushing more out the door. Yeah, just get uh, it out of the ground. And, and so, if, the, the, if the costs are or the costs are fifty percent higher, well, that's down here. Fifty yeah, percent of a low number, uh, and the yeah. margin's huge. Mm. So, uh, in the interests of shareholders, uh, mining companies don't worry too much about costs, and you can see that as being economically rational. Yeah. Uh, now that turns around when prices start to fall, yeah. and we've seen that. Since 2011, mm. uh, lots of people were uh, sacked from the yeah. uh, mining industries because the margins are shrinking. So that's one factor. Another factor is with this big boom we've had in resources, 
Uh, to get the volumes, we've had to bring lower cost yeah. deposits into, into production. Yeah. We need a lot more labour and capital to produce mm. the same amount mm. of uh, yeah. uh, 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 of um, uh, output. And the third factor is that this one's just a statistical one. Uh, the way we measure productivity, you look at the amount of capital used in the industry and the output, and you compare the amount of output with capital. But but if you're making huge new investments, you're you're, you're expanding the, the mm. capital base before you get the output. So, so if we look ahead, I don't think we have got a problem in mining. No, that that it'll self correct. It'll self correct. Yeah, we will have lower productivity than we used to have. Yeah, but it's not a big problem for the yeah. economy. In utilities, we do have a problem, mm. and we've really made a mess of regulating these industries. We've give we make the most elementary mistake in uh, microeconomics. We regulate price in monopolies by uh, uh, giving a guaranteed uh, rate of return. Well, this is, you, you talked about uh, 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 the, the reform era being a period of mostly textbook economics. Mm. Well, this is textbook economics and this is an example of Inverted. what you must, nev yeah, must right. never do. The sealed, <laughs> the sealed section. Yeah. <laughs> There's a famous article in the American Economic Review in, in, the, in the early 60s about this, say what you must never do is uh, regulate the rate of return of a natural... Uh, so you're giving a monopolist a guaranteed rate of return. That's right. Because mm. uh, uh, either you'll set the rate of return too low, in which case you get no investment, mm. or you set it too high, and you introduce an incentive for wasteful overinvestment. Yeah. You will n almost impossible ever to get it right. And so, that rate of return, I'm a, I understand, is 8.4%. Effectively in real terms, yeah. because uh, because the capital base is adjusted for, for yeah. inflation. So if you're alternative is investing in US Treasury bonds, you get 0.25, or you can invest in Australian electricity assets and get 8.4. And that's one, of, guaranteed. that's one of the reasons why in the last five years, I mentioned the figures in dog days, uh, we, we've invested about $100 billion in utilities yeah. at a time when output has actually declined. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the total volume of electricity and water yeah. uh, sold to houses and, and businesses has fallen in that time, but we've spent $100 billion on expanding. Which is capacity. why I have a double uh, expenditure on the National Broadband Network, but at least you know what you get with the National Broadband <laughs> Network. Here yeah. you get, well, uh, maybe a couple of hours a, a year um, without a power interruption. That's what you're really buying. Yeah, you, you, you might, you might mm. save that. Mm. Uh, so th that's a horrible story, but this is the good the good part of it is that we can fix it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's but always when you uh, uh, make a mistake in regulation, someone benefits from mm -hmm. it. And so the big problem of reform yeah. is uh, taking away some benefit that someone's enjoying. guaranteed rate yeah. of return. Um, uh, that does raise um, carbon pricing yeah. in this sense that uh, over the last few years, electricity prices have gone up by about 70%, I believe. 10% of that is carbon pricing. 60% is this so-called gold plating of wires and poles. Why isn't the political system and the public angry about the 60% and are so angry about the 10%? Well, I think that's uh, the uh, uh, cleverness of the politicians who sought to make a case against carbon pricing, and if you don't mind me saying, uh, the dullness of the politicians who uh, had an interest in making the opposite case. Mm. Uh, 
And the hard thing to explain is uh, why people in the government were so comfortable about letting uh, those uh, arrangements, which were gouging uh, consumers from 2006 onwards. Yeah. The new regulatory regime was put in place in 2006. So why, uh, uh, why uh, people in the government, uh, at first the government that put it in place and then the mm. Labor government didn't make more an issue of that. Mm. that. That's what has to be explained. It did towards the end and said, you know, that it was going to get a, um, an agreement to change this, but uh, exactly that, an agreement with the states. Mm. Um, anyway, that's probably happened and Tony Abbott will be able to say he brought the price of electricity down, but really mainly because yeah. of ending this massive rort of the 8.4% guaranteed rate of return. Yeah, the government said that by uh, getting rid of the carbon price, if they do, then uh, I think they've said electricity prices will fall by uh, uh, 9% and mm. gas prices by 7%. Uh, well, that that uh, within a within the margin of error, that's, mm. that, that's uh, about right, just looking at this factor alone. But by reforming the... Uh, regulation of the poles and wires, giving a, an economically rational rate of return, mm. you, you'll get two gains from it. you get an absolute reduction in electricity prices uh, because um, the, the, the re return given on past investment will actually fall. Mm. And if the return fell, just for the uh, sake of an example, from 8% to 7%, you would reduce by uh, one-eighth, by 12.5%, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 cost of the of, of that part of your electricity bill, which is transmission and mm. distribution, yeah. and that's more than half your electricity bill. So that factor alone will would bring down the uh, uh, yeah. the, the the carbon price, even at one percent fall in the rate of return, price, yeah. the electricity price by as much as the carbon price. In in addition, you no longer will have the incentive for wasteful overinvestment. Mm. Mm. So. Uh, uh, so you, so that will reduce the. Uh, um, the so price in pure future. policy terms, if you really want to get the price of electricity down, you'd go for reform of these regulations, um, because they don't do much good and do a lot of harm. Whereas on the carbon pricing, it does some good. Yeah. Uh, and and the government seems to be concentrating on that. We've got to get rid of this nine percent. Um, I suppose the policy recommendation is have a look at the at the big source of the increase in electricity prices because you can do something about that. Yeah, and uh, and the part that's carbon pricing doesn't disappear. The extra that you pay for uh, uh, for poles and wires mm -hmm. because of bad regulation, uh, well, disappears from Australian consumers. Yeah. Uh, uh, part of it goes straight into the profits of uh, the, the companies, which mm. happen to be overwhelmingly uh, foreign. Uh, foreign companies, yeah. but uh, or else in some states, mm. still state government-owned enterprises. Uh, but but all of that um, extra that you pay for to pay for the overinvestment in poles and wires just wasted, mm. uh, just mm. disappears. disappears yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas the carbon pricing goes into government revenue, yeah. and that was the basis of the tax cuts. Yeah. Um, that were introduced with the carbon price in 2011, the increase in the tax-free threshold mm. to 18,000, plus some mm. adjustments in Social Security. So that money just doesn't disappear. Now, uh, uh, Mr Abbott uh, promised to keep the tax cuts. Uh, that's exactly what Paul Keating did 
in his fight with John Huston over the goods and services tax in 93. Uh, John Huston said, I'll put a GST uh, on, uh, uh, on, ev- on everything, but give you a tax cut. Mm. Uh, well, Paul Keating at the time said, I don't like this GST, but I'll still give you the the tax cut. And people faced with a choice, I'll take that one. That That sounds good. The problem with it was it wasn't sustainable. And then the Labor government had to withdraw the tax cut, and that was politically uh, very damaging. That was the LAW law tax cut. That was a horrible episode. So so, uh, the difference between getting a lower electricity price from reforming Mm. uh, poles and wires uh, is that you get into consumers' pockets money that was going to disappear. Whereas uh, in the case of uh, carbon pricing, uh, if you uh, remove carbon pricing, you also remove the government revenue. Mm. And while people get their tax cuts anyway under current policy, there's a hole in the budget. Uh, And and we have a dreadful problem uh, in our budget looking forward, and it's, it's been getting worse ever since 2011. Uh, but the worst problem is beyond the four-year budget yeah. estimates, and that's when the big costs of uh, well, alternatives... I want to explore to... that with you. Yeah. So what, what's coming down uh, the highway at us in terms of the period outside this so-called four-year forward estimates period, the yeah. budget period? Well, well the, um, I, while I've called the book dog days and... Uh, 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 there's more of the book about how we avoid things getting too bad mm. rather than just talking about how, how bad things are going yeah, to be. Yeah. So if you're talking four years out, the first thing you've got to say is how bad it is will depend on what we do about it. Yeah. Uh, and it, and uh, the core of any uh, sensible strategy uh, will be to uh, make sure we have a big real reduction in the exchange rate. Yeah. If we get that early, and, and that's, not, that's easier than it's... That's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, people have got to pull their belts in a bit because there'll be some price increases result from that. But but if we do that right, uh, then there's a reasonable prospect of uh, stopping the decline in employment, mm-hmm. uh, stopping the decline in business profits, uh, returning to some e- economic growth, decent economic growth in this four-year period. Yeah. If we do all that, then the budget won't look too bad. Yeah. It's st- still got a hard job. Mm. Uh, but it won't look too bad after the four years. Yeah. But if we don't do that, mm. uh, then there's, uh, there's no reason to think the budget will improve at all. At all. And uh, this uh, lift in the debt ceiling from 300 to 500 billion that the Treasurer is talking about, that won't be enough. Won't be enough. He'll be back asking well, for 700 billion. I, I thought I'd just explain this fall in the real exchange rate that you're talking yeah. about. So the exchange rate that's published compared with the US dollar is the most um, common comparison and it's now what 94 cents 94 yeah. 94 cents it was a dollar 3 in uh, when the um, may budget was brought down so it's come down but you're saying it needs to come down further what into the 80s i suppose well i, I when it was up 103 to 105 mm. i said it has to come down 20 to 40% yeah now, that's a pretty wide range. That, mm. that says early 60s to early 80s. Yeah. And why it's a wide range is it does depend on how business responds. Yeah, sure. uh, so you learn that as you go along. Yeah. But, but we don't, there's no hope of a solution 
until okay. we get down to the early yeah. 80s. Yeah. Whether or not that's, that's enough, right. we'll find out later. And the second part, you talk about the real exchange rate because, as you say, when the exchange rate comes down, the price of imported goods and services goes up. And if we then compensate everyone for those higher prices, then the real exchange rate hasn't fallen. That's and right. And that's what determines the competitiveness. That's right, yeah. And so what you're saying is that the general community will need to take a bit of pain and not expect that when the price of um, uh, of computers goes up or iPads and so on, um, because they're imported and they go up, that they somehow go to the government and the government says, all right, we'll increase your um, government payments, your yeah. family payments or something. So they have to take a bit of pain. Yeah, and, 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 and wages, and, wages and profits of business. Yeah. It, it, it's the issues there right across yeah. the community. So if everyone takes a bit of pain, then at least that means that it's fairly distributed yeah. because if you don't do that, it's rising unemployment and that's unfairly distributed because the people who lose their jobs bear the burden. That's right. And uh, uh, there's a... Fairness ends up being essential for the political viability yeah. of restraint. Uh, it's really hard to do to, uh, after a period of rising incomes and high prosperity, to get the community to pull in its belt a bit. And the only times we've ever been able to get uh, people to agree in our democratic society mm. to pulling in their belt is when it's been when we've been led by a government that's appealed to a sense of shared sacrifice in the national interest. Yeah. And that means, uh, well, back in the 30s, uh, after the Premier's plan and uh, after the election of the Lions government, uh, bondholders took a cut mm. in, in mm. contractual interest rates, and, and, uh, 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 which reduced the burden yeah. on, on other people. Mm. Wage earners took a cut. Yeah. Everyone took a cut. Uh, in, in circumstances like today, uh, the more we can shift taxation onto economic rents, Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the more we can avoid tax uh, reductions to business that don't have any effect in improving economic incentives. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, but we're going the opposite direction because the, and I'm, not, I'm deliberately trying not to make this a political discussion about in the party political sense, but there is a tax on economic rent called the mineral resource yeah. rent tax. And um, I did a bit of work on this. There's an enormous um, volume of deductions that are still in the system, and outside of this four-year period, those deductions will be exhausted. Yep. But the tax will be gone. Yeah. It's going to be scrapped. So there is a tax that's in right now that would collect a lot of revenue outside this four-year period, but it won't because it's going to go. Yeah, and one, it, it's really a failure of our political system to only focus on the next four years on the budget mm. when the big problem, bigger problems may yeah. very well be further out. So we've got uh, the ageing of the population. I think everyone understands that that increases the expenditure requirement. It will know? increase uh, the tax requirement, according to the Intergenerational Report of the Treasury, by about 4.7% of GDP by the yeah. middle of the century. Yeah, which is a big number. Mm. So you've got that, we've got the mining tax going, we've got the carbon price going, so that's two and The carbon price uh, hits the uh, forward budget after, after the next yeah. four years in two ways. Uh, th there was a, uh, on late line television... Uh, uh, in the in the middle of uh, November, uh, there was a chap from Frontier Economics mm -hmm. explaining direct action. He, he, he said he was an advisor to the government on direct action. I don't know exactly his mm -hmm. role, but uh, 
he was explaining that the government would be able to reach its target of minus 5% uh, uh, by spending a lot of money in years 5 and 6, after, after, the, four after the four-year period. And so suddenly the expenditure yeah. hugely increases. But also you don't have the, the revenue. revenue from the uh, yeah. carbon price. So, that, so of all the hits on the budget uh, that, that uh, are relevant mm. to, uh, uh, to, to the... Uh, uh, the budget situation in years five and six, so uh, replacement of carbon pricing by uh, direct action is probably the biggest. Yeah. Then there's that paid parental leave scheme, the new paid parental leave scheme. So that's a big new expenditure. The At some stage, the private health insurance rebate will be re-extended to yeah. everyone. And, and, so uh, and it gets that, a bit ugly after... Well, and then there's, the, then there's commitments introduced by the Labor government on... National Disability Scheme mm. and, and, and increased expenditure on school education. Yeah. Now, I myself uh, give very high value to the National Disability yeah. Scheme, I, uh, and that has huge community support. I personally w would, would much rather cut a lot of other things yeah. to make way for that. Yeah. But these, are, but but there will be these discussions mm. of priorities. Mm. The important thing is that. We can't afford to add new things without taking away some and, and one of the key sources of revenue, and you may not be fully aware of this, for both the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the school education reforms and needs-based funding was to be superannuation changes, which are modest in that four-year period but would build up as savings to the budget a lot after that. Well, they're being abolished too. I didn't know about that, yeah. but but I am really worried about years five, six, mm. seven, mm. eight, and uh, uh, and at the moment the politics is all about the next four years because that's the way uh, 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 budgets have been presented. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, next year, uh, year five is year four. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> and it starts appearing, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, it's better for the government. To take a long view mm. of things, uh, otherwise years. it'll be facing uh, another election in three years' yeah. time, and uh, with all these ugly numbers, all these ugly numbers mm. uh, stretching before it. Uh, and uh, the, uh, you, you may not uh, agree with this, uh, Craig, but my own view as an Australian is I would love this government to be a successful government. I want every Australian uh, government uh, to be a and, success. And uh, uh, and uh, and to be so successful that it keeps on being elected, mm. but that won't happen unless it addresses these problems and yeah. fixes up these problems. Mm. So it sounds like we're not handling the China, the end of the China boom very well. I, I, I will ask, though, there had been, through the global financial crisis, obviously a lot of Keynesian spending, uh, learning the lessons of the 30s. What's your assessment about the reduction or the slowing in the rate of expenditure after the global financial crisis ended? Well, I think the immediate response of, of uh, putting a lot of extra expenditure into the system when the crisis hit mm. was right. Mm. We avoided recession, we avoided a big lift in unemployment, and that that's, makes a big difference. Yeah. Uh, in retrospect, I'd say we kept that stimulus going a year too long. Mm -hmm. uh, it was quite clear by early 2010 that the that the China, China had stepped the, in the and China, did its own stimulus. The China Keynesian expansion mm. was so strong mm. that it lifted us. Yeah. Uh, now, we tightened up big time 
from the middle of 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a year too late. Yeah. Uh, and but, that tight, did that tightening continue after 2011? Yeah, well, from data that I was looking at for dog days, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the year that's, that's just finished, I can't find another year in history as tight as that in real terms mm-hmm. uh, in the budget. So, so that's real tight. Uh, uh, so uh, while while I'd say the tightening was left a year too late, you can't say that the subsequent expenditure was excessive. Yeah, I understand. I wanted now to move on to um, uh, talk about your views, effectively, of the morality of the show. Um, this is the last third of your book, and while you are... Um, insistent on the need for reform uh, to lift productivity growth, to make all the make room for some of these great social reforms such as national disability insurance scheme. I don't think I've ever seen you so pessimistic about the broader culture. And this again is not picking on a political party, but the role of big companies in financing campaigns against governments. Um, the role of um, very wealthy business people in getting elected by being able to fund, outspend others in their own campaigns, the role of the media. Um, what's going on? Why, why, why are things looking so crooked? Well, you say you've never seen me this pessimistic, but uh, you're a young man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I started writing... Oh, shucks. <laughs> I started writing about uh, the need for Australia to get rid of protection. Yeah. I think my first public art, published article was probably about sixty nine right, yeah. on that. So, so I was fairly depressed in mm-hmm. the in the seventies, and yeah. uh, uh, at that time, and uh, Kim Anderson, my colleague now uh, then at the ANU, now at the University of Adelaide, mm-hmm. uh, and I did a book on Australian protection. We actually did the work in the uh, early eighties, and that's pretty pessimistic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's very clear about where we should go, should go. and it took uh, at least uh, a decade. But it, but it's not very optimistic about mm. us getting there. Mm. Uh, so, uh, but uh, uh, but we did have the reform era, which yeah. shows that it's possible. Yeah, and then we've reverted, and some uh, and some parts of the change back in political culture to the pre-reform era have taken us further. Back. No, but further back than we were, and and the the new thing is the completely unin, uninhibited um, uh, uh, willingness of interested groups uh, with with barrows to push yeah. to put money into the political process to get outcomes. So it's not just the lobbying; it's putting the money in. Is this um, political donations plus paid advertisements? Paid advertisements, and, and the the first. Big example of it was uh, the, the campaign against work choices. And whatever you think about work choices, mm. uh, all, the, all of those ads about whinging Wendy uh, w- weren't about rational discussion of the issues. Uh, it, it was uh, investing in the influencing of public opinion. Now, it, it got a result, and if you think work choices went too far, and I think, uh, like Tony Abbott, I think that, it did go too far. Mm. Um, but whatever you think about the outcome, uh, when you are using money, in this case trade union money, to influence uh, opinion, not through appeals to the national interest, not through appeals to uh, 
uh, to, to the actual uh, effects of something on uh, in- incomes, uh, but those very emotional appeals. You're, mm. you're, you're tre- treading into new territory. Well, since then, uh, we've we've uh, that, that's all that's become the norm. Uh, and we had that huge campaign against continuing on a, a, one over a long period of time against carbon pricing from affected industries, against the mineral tax, uh, against uh, the, the fringe benefits, fringe tax, benefits tax, the, the, the gambling reforms, mm. um, even the pharmaceuticals. The, the pharmaceutical companies were threatening to yeah run a campaign. Uh, run Everyone a cam- knew what a ca- running a campaign meant. By yeah, then, yeah. By then, so uh, it's it's made change harder because. Uh, um, uh, now, it, it, uh, 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 the business campaigns against things they didn't like uh, became very big uh, uh, under the, the Labor government. But these things can, can will, will be used against a, uh, a, a, mm-hmm. a conservative government as well. Now, at the launch of Dog Days in Canberra, uh, Malcolm Turnbull pointed out quite fairly that there have been such campaigns in the past, and he recalled the campaign against bank nationalisation right. in '49. Yeah. So, yeah. so you do. So uh, Malcolm's right that that, mm. uh, that that had some similarities. They were self-interested to an extent to yeah. the banks. Um, now, I, I actually th- think that we uh, um, avoided a bullet by uh, not nationalising yeah, our yeah. banks back then. Yeah. But but still, you did have that very heavy mm. investment in the political process. Um, I think that just my memory of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, articles written about that campaign is that it, it wasn't so crudely self-interested. The appeal to the yeah, national interest was bigger uh, than, than in the recent. Yeah. What about the other players? We've got um, uh, the role of media. Uh, you talk about that in your book, the uh, role of News Limited or media concentration. It could be another company. It happens to be News Limited with 70% of the print media. Yeah, I say over 60. Um, I, some people say 70. I know mm. Rupert Murdoch said it's more like 60 than 70. Right. So in the book, I, in Dog Days, I say over, over 60. Okay. But it's an extent of concentration that we wouldn't allow if they were selling soap powder or wheat mix. Mm. And uh, and what, what we're talking about here is not some minor yeah. commodity. It's uh, it's the information that uh, is an essential input into our democracy. And the role of um, online media, um, this sort of atomization, the so-called twenty-four hour media cycle. To what extent does that mitigate against um, informed discussion and debate? Well, I th- I think that's still evolving. Yeah, I don't know. Where that will end mm. could end up a plus or a minus. Yeah. Uh, what you're doing here with Mo uh, 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 is being done in different ways by by that's different right. people. And that's expanding the uh, the knowledge base, mm. and and in principle, that atomization can lead to, to more informed, a, a better informed. Uh, on the other hand, the proliferation of uh, information outlets means that people can choose their news mm. or choose their facts, yeah. tune, in to, choose, tune in to things they like to hear. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it might make it harder to change mm. people's minds. This is an argument about Fox. I think they did it in the United States. They worked out who they wanted to watch Fox and then told them what they wanted to hear and the audience said, we really like this station because their views are very similar to ours. Yeah. So it captured that group and alienated the rest, but that was more than enough 
to be a very good money-making proposition. Yeah. Now, what the actual effect of that is on, on the policy-making process is quite complex. It could uh, mean a um, sharper partisan divide. It certainly means that, and, and that's happened in the US. Yeah. Uh, uh, people don't change their mind. Election after election, you get just about a 50-50 split. Mm, yes. uh, and, and it doesn't change state-to-state, election-to-election, except at the margin. Yeah. Um, and that's because so many people are just listening to the news they want to hear. Yes. Uh, so so uh, that's a real challenge <coughs> for a government wanting to reform in the public Well, let interest. me ask the next logical question, and it happens to be about Clive Palmer, but it could be about any wealthy business person. Um, at that last election held just recently, um, the there was dis- disillusionment with Labor, there's no doubt about that. There was apprehension about... Um, the coalition, therefore, was ready-made for a third um, alternative. And Clive Palmer advertised very heavily right towards the end of that election campaign. I remember the campaign betting, the, the actual betting, betting on um, different candidates and different parties actually had the Catter Party doing okay, but they didn't have any money. And that last week, the Palmer Party just poured the money in and got a pretty good result, two or three senators and Clive Palmer himself elected. Um, I wonder if that's a product of this, um, people herding in behind their political party and then someone else coming along and saying, I'm I'm an alternative, I've got a lot of money, vote for me. Either a positive alternative or, at the very least, um, a protest vote. Yeah, I, I think we should be doing a lot of analysing, yeah. both political scientists mm. and uh, people who mm. um, have, the, have the background properly to yeah. analyse these things. We should be putting a lot of work into this. It's, it's a big threat to our democracy. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the Palmer United Party uh, it, it introduces a number of new things into our democracy. One is the one you've mentioned. Another is conflict of interest. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, it we haven't had before um, a, a member of our legislature with such direct conflicts of interest. Doesn't seem uh, to be uncommon in the U.S. Congress, though. I mean, they they seem to be quite heavily conflicted. Not every Congress man or woman, but it, it's culturally here, we don't have it. We haven't had it. Yeah. Seems to be in the U.S. You know, they're running big businesses or uh, chairing boards or on. On, bo- um, on boards. I, I don't know that. Mm. Uh, I, 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 Something I might look yeah, at that, in the future. Yeah, that's an important point. question. I, mm. I'd be a bit surprised, actually, because mm. uh, Mr Palmer, uh, a, a grand Australian, mm. um, big figure in Australia, and uh, uh, he's entitled to play a role in public life, but, yeah. but he's still running yeah. businesses. Yeah. Uh, he, his companies owe $8 million in carbon tax. Now, he, to his credit, uh, I'll, I'll give Mr Palmer this to his credit, he has acknowledged a conflict of interest yeah. and he has said that he will treat discussion of this matter, uh, of the matters in which he has a conflict, like the mm. carbon tax, like the uh, uh, um, mining tax in the House of Representatives as if it was discussion of a matter in which he had a conflict on a board of directors. He'll take himself out of, direct, yeah. out of yeah. the, the chamber for the discussion yeah. and the vote. That's the right thing to do. Yeah. Where the difficult 
uh, question comes is in the Senate. Yeah. His vote actually doesn't matter in the in House the of Reps. Yeah. It won't determine anything. Mm. The votes of his party may very well determine mm. the outcome yeah. of, uh, yeah. uh, 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 determine the fate of carbon mm. pricing, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I say in dog days, I, I discuss this and uh, say that uh, Mr. Palmer is exactly right to recognise the conflict mm. of interest in the House of Reps. You have the same conflict in the mm -hmm. Senate, yeah. and it will be a taint on our democracy yeah. and, uh, if uh, the carbon pricing is repealed on on the votes of people who are conflicted. Yeah, I understand. And if I could just say very quickly before a final question to you, I'm not being grumpy that Labor lost the election. I mean, you know, Labor was a divided party. Clive Palmer won the seat of Fairfax. Clive Palmer has got two, maybe three senators, good luck to him. It's just a matter of how you manage uh, that in terms of your behaviour in the parliament. But Ross, um, uh, uh, an offer that I could make to you is this. Uh, if you could change one thing in the world, uh, what would you change? Oh, the world's too big. Uh, I'd have peace in the Middle East. Uh, uh, let's talk about uh, Australian policy. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing I could change in Australian policy, in the interests of the Abbott government, it would be the uh, the Prime Minister's commitment uh, to uh, implement every one of his promises, no matter what the conditions, because good government sometimes requires adjustment of policy once you recognise that circumstances are not the same as you thought they were. So you're saying um, Australia would be better off if Tony Abbott as Prime Minister broke a number of these promises. Yes, uh, and uh, the contrast between the Whitlam government and the Hawke government is instructive in this respect. Uh, uh, Mr Whitlam, uh, in some ways to his credit, kept every promise. Mm -hmm. Even with conditions uh, changing. When conditions were not as yeah. he expected them to be, and that was an important part of uh, Australia entering nine years of high unemployment and instability. I would hate that to happen again. And it could because we're dealing with the end of the boom yeah. and there needs to be a recognition of that in government policy. That's right. And uh, uh, we're, uh, we're only going to get out of these circumstances without high unemployment, a long period of instability, uh, if we're quite disciplined in a wide range of areas. and. Uh, uh, loose ends here and there will bring us unstuck uh, and, uh, and and a government needs to be free to apply the the right policy in the circumstances, notwithstanding uh, electoral commitments to the country. Well, thank you. In the national interest, thank you very much for joining us on MI4. Thanks, Ross. Bye.